Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if I can have your attention, I think we'll begin uh, this evening. Good evening. Uh, on behalf of the International Bible Advocacy Centre and Christians in Parliament, it's my great pleasure to welcome you here this evening to our debate on the question, is the Bible a bridge or barrier to democracy? My name is David Smith and I'm the Head of International Programme for Bible Society, where IBAC is based. Uh, firstly, I'd like to thank you for joining us tonight on a cold evening. I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Gary Streeter at the back, um, the Chair of Christians in Parliament and our host for this evening. Um, so thank you very much, Gary. Most of you uh, may be aware of Christians in Parliament, the all-party parliamentary group in Parliament, but you may not be aware of the International Bible Advocacy Centre, and I'd just like to say a little bit about us uh, before the debate begins this evening. IBAC is an initiative of Bible Society, and it exists to advocate for the goodness and relevance of the Bible in the public square of all cultures. And we particularly do that through the Bible Society, which operates in 146 countries worldwide. And so we bring together a global network of Bible advocates who uh, advocate for the Bible in their own uh, public square and inspire others to do the same. But what does that mean? What does it mean to advocate for the Bible? Well, it means several things actually, but in Africa, it may mean bringing top political leaders together uh, to consider the Bible's vision for peace, justice, and economic development. Or in China, for example, it may mean bringing together Chinese academics to consider the role of the Bible in culture, the environment, or social services, and many other topics. IBAC also publishes uh, research on the Bible and its influence globally, like the paper which has inspired tonight's debate, which is entitled Democracy, Conflict, and the Bible, Reflections on the Role of the Bible in International Affairs. And this paper, uh, for those of you who are interested, is available to download on our website, www.bibleadvocacy.org, as a PDF. Uh, and shortly during this evening's discussion, there will be a, a list going around where if you'd like a hard copy, uh, you can order one and we will send that to you. Um, why did we do this? Why did we undertake uh, this piece of work? Well, it's an exploration of the Bible's historic and continuing influence on international affairs. In particular, it aims to answer questions like, how has the Bible contributed to the formation of institutions like the United Nations? Or, what can the Bible contribute towards the imperatives to peacekeeping, peacemaking, uh, human rights and democratisation? More specifically, uh, in the light of current affairs and the tragedy that we see unfolding from Syria to Paris, is it still even legitimate to promote the place of a holy book in uh, the public square? These are maybe some of the questions that our panellists will consider and that you might consider as you uh, take part in the conversation this evening. It just remains for me uh, to introduce our chair for this evening and who in turn will introduce our distinguished panellists uh, that we have before us. Uh, our chair is James Featherby. James read Theology and Law at Selwyn College, Cambridge, and is a former partner of international law firm Slaughter and May from 1981 to 2011. He's chair of the Church of England's Ethical Investment Advisory Group, 
and a respected thinker and commentator on the connection between faith and business. James is the author of, of Markets and Men, Reshaping Finance for a New Season, and The White Swan Formula, Rebuilding Business and Finance for the Common Good. James is married to Charlotte, a church leader, and they have five adult children and six grandchildren, ever growing. Um, his interests include China and development activities in Africa, and in July, James became chairman of the Bible Society. So if you could welcome uh, James this evening, I will introduce the panelists. David, and if I can also extend my thanks to, to Gary for um, hosting this evening, it really is much appreciated. Thank you and for all that you do to support uh, what happens in this wonderful place. Um, we have quite an international audience here. Um, these are tense times, like maybe all times. Um, we have people from all parts of, of the globe represented here, which is fantastic. Um, I'm saying that partly to encourage you, as I know you would, to be sensitive to uh, other parts of the world as we discuss things tonight. Um, just to outline the program that we're going to run through, um, my three colleagues here are, are going to speak each for about four or five minutes and I'll introduce them separately in a second. I'm afraid Francis Elliott, on, who would have been on my left, uh, who's a journalist uh, with The Times, um, he's got caught up with other exciting things happening this evening, so he may or may not appear, so um, we'll have to play that by ear. Um, in terms of the panellists we have here, um, on my far right we have Major General Tim Cross, CBE. Uh, Tim retired from the British Army in 2007 after 36 years of service, including deployments in Iraq, Northern Ireland and the Balkans, so he knows a few things about conflicts. Um, he was awarded the uh, CBE in 2000 for his work uh, with NATO's response to the humanitarian crisis in Kosovo. Uh, and Tim's also worked uh, in a key role with the Coalition Provisional Authority, which is a US-led transitional program, uh, government program in Iraq following the invasion in 2003. Uh, following Tim's retirement, he's served as an advisor to the House of Commons Defence Select Committee for seven years. He's visiting professor to three universities and an advisor to a number of UK and international companies and charities. And Tim is also a lay minister in the Church of England. Uh, Nick Spencer on my left is the director of research at Theos. He is the author of a number of Theos reports and books. I won't read all the titles because they're terribly long, but um, I'll summarise the key word in each title. Darwin, freedom, politics and atheism. Um, he's a visiting research fellow at the Faiths and Civil Society Unit at Goldsmith, part of the University of London. Uh, he's the author of uh, one of the papers um, in this uh, booklet, which I, I've read and much enjoyed. Um, thank you, Nick. And uh, sitting here on my right is Dr. Mike Basus, who has just flown in from Lebanon. Uh, Mike joined the Bible Society in Lebanon uh, a little while ago and oversees as well the work that the Bible Society does in Syria and Iraq. Uh, he was appointed General Secretary of the Bible Society in Lebanon in 2004. Obviously, as one might expect, Mike has seen firsthand the enormous human cost of the conflict in Syria uh, as refugees have flooded into Lebanon uh, and has been playing a key role in the work of the Bible Society in partnership with other relief agencies trying to meet some of the practical and spiritual uh, needs of the refugees. 
Prior to joining the Bible Society, Mike spent 12 years working in a number of different businesses with all sorts of different executive and other entrepreneurial roles. He's adjunct professor at four universities across Lebanon and the USA and has published widely on topics including the Middle East, nonprofit organizations, and church relations. Just in case for us this turns up, um, he's been a journalist for 20 years, uh, works on the Times, where he's currently the chief uh, political editor, uh, having previously worked um, with The Independent, and he is an award-winning journalist. So I hope it does turn up, but if he doesn't, we can bash on without him. Um, I think it's a really interesting topic. Um, I've just come back myself from China, um, where, as you might imagine, being Chinese, they are studying everything, uh, including why the West has been successful. And it's really interesting to me that there's an academic department that I've been liaising with there, part of the government, which is advising the government on how to respond to the growth of Christianity in China. And it's somewhat ironic that this government department has reached the conclusion um, that Christianity, if only we could do without the politics, uh, Christianity is something to be welcomed. Uh, so it's, it feels a little ironic that a communist government, government has reached that conclusion, but there you go. Um, from my own background um, in, in business, uh, I have seen firsthand the difficulties that a sphere of society gets into uh, if cut loose from its cultural origins, whatever they might happen to be. Um, I lived through the financial crisis, as, as we all did, and saw it up close and personal. It's been really interesting to me watching the response to the financial crisis, uh, and particularly um, some of the more effective responses that I think are being uh, developed to the financial crisis in terms of trying to help people find meaning and purpose, because without those, you end up uh, not having good business. Um, I wonder whether politics might, might be another similar area. So I'm very much looking forward uh, to the debate uh, tonight. Um, as I say, these guys will speak for four or five minutes. Um, uh, I might then ask one or two questions, uh, just in case you're feeling shy, um, but I rather suspect you're not. Um, and then I'd be delighted to take some, some questions and comments uh, from the audience. So, Tim, if we may start with you. Thanks, James. <coughs> I, um, I feel a bit humbled in this exalted company, I have to say. Uh, my favourite quote is H.G. Wells, who's reputed to have said that the professional military mind is by necessity an inferior and unimaginative mind. <laughs> so uh, prepare yourself <laughs> for, for some of that. Um, you may remember Robin Cook's declaration uh, of the need for an ethical dimension in foreign policy, which came out in 1997. The term force for good assigned to the British military came out at about that same sort of time. And it's still, in a sense, the government's strapline for the British Armed Forces. And I'm going to speak on this context, or in this context, from a military point of view, if I may. Uh, and so, therefore, the question in terms of being a force for good in the world is what is goodness, and where does goodness, goodness spring from? Uh, if we were to ask uh, what the British military is all about, then the answer to that question, according to our doctrine, is that we are to be uh, we are to produce and deliver fighting power. When we go off on these operations around the world, that is what we're there for. So what does fighting power consist of, if you imagine a military going off to take part in a campaign? The first two components of that we call the physical and the conceptual components of fighting power. It's about the stuff. 
the equipment and, and how to use that equipment. But there is a third component formally written into British Army doctrine which is called the moral component of fighting power. And the moral component essentially is what gives the British military the will to win, the, the, the reasons for going on these deployments. And uh, that moral component is broken down again into various components, things like leadership and so on, but again formally part of British Army doctrine, it says that that moral component has to be rooted in an ethical and moral base. Fighting power is morally based because all contact and activity between people is always morally charged, sometimes only slightly, but in the military context usually substantially. But the moral component is quite difficult to define. It rests on words like trust and loyalty, duty and honour, integrity and courage, both physical courage and probably more importantly moral courage. Ultimately I think it depends and rests upon character, the key differentiator between a good military and the brutal military. Take character away and you are left with pure militarism. Character provides an underpinning framework for words like justice and righteousness and the idea of being involved in a military campaign for the right reasons, for justice and righteousness and so on, is very important. It also frames the codes of behaviour on an operation, following the Geneva Conventions, the laws of armed conflict and so on. And crucially, encourages up to the face to, for us to face up to the reality that we, like any other organisation, have made up of flawed human beings who get it wrong. And when we do get it wrong, we need to acknowledge that and to deal with it. So when we talk about a force for good and a moral component in the British military, let's reverse the question slightly and say if there was no biblical uh, background to this, uh, what would that military look like when that character, which has got to be rooted in something, and my argument would be for us it's rooted in our biblical heritage, what happens when that character is missing? In the last 60 years or so we've seen any number of atheistic, secular, humanistic societies, Stalin's Russia. Mao's China, Pol Pot's Cambodia, and of course Hitler's Germany, to name but a few. The latter being a crude mix of nationalism, social Darwinism, and bastardized paganism. It was in effect the archetypal idolatrous society. And the brutality of their militaries reflected those regimes' worldviews. They may have been effective, and in some cases they were very effective. You couldn't. Uh, disagree that the German military from 1939 to sort of 1945 was pretty effective, but their militaries reflected those worldviews and they were ruthless and they were idolatrous and they were brutal. Believing as they did in secular relativism meant an absolute disregard to life, as Stalin famously said, one death is a statistic, uh, sorry, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic, which of course results in mass murder and genocide. And our threat today is mostly defined by terrorists and insurgents who choose where and when to strike, appear and disappear by cloaking themselves in the darkness of the underworld. No rules, no uniforms, no front lines, no inhibitions, no limitations, no territory usually to defend. They have no inhibition about breaking the law, especially the laws of democratic liberal states, nor indeed do many others operating on the battlefields around the world. So-called justice by the insurgents, shooting through kneecaps, buttocks, elbows, savage beatings, beheadings and so on, are presented on the same basis as those attempting to uphold the, root of the, the rule of law. And those defending 
those defending that against it within democracies cannot afford to do the same thing. Indeed, we must not fall to their level. What dictatorships and police states will trample all over human rights and the rule of law, liberal democracies must behave differently. We cannot defeat terrorists and insurgents by joining them in the darkness of the underworld, by copying their methods. We have to win a battle of ideas, establishing truth and common humanity. Even if that means, as often is the case, we have to operate with one hand tied behind our back. The problem is that our so-called civilization is covered with a thin varnish. Scratch it, and underneath you find fear. And democracies have to, present, to preserve the coat of varnish in a good state of repair, because operating outside the law and the moral code, outside the ethical framework, always scratches the varnish. So we need the military in democracies to stand firm against scratching that varnish too deeply. Militaries not driven by fear. The character can't be taught, legislated for, or bought. At its heart, as Aristotle taught it, it's a habit, the daily choice of right instead of wrong. So character has to be rooted in something. And for me, as a Christian soldier, character has to, is rooted in the biblical context, the biblical instruction, the biblical writing that gives us the idea of being a force for good in the world, that gives us the idea of a moral framework and an ethical code. Character defines who we are and it determines our behavior. It's who we are and what we get up to in the dark or when we think that no one is watching. And if the British military inside our democracy is going to stay in the right place in that debate, then I think it has to be built on biblical foundations, which has certainly helped me as I have commanded soldiers on various operational deployments around the world. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here, although something of a challenge, as addressing the subject in four to five minutes is a little bit like the Monty Python sketch of being asked to summarise the complete works of Proust in 15 seconds. I have seven points written down here, which I suspect is somewhat optimistic, but I will try and rattle through them, and hopefully we will have a little bit more to time to expand on them in our discussion afterwards. In case I don't get to an answer, and there's a possibility, my answer to the presenting question is it's both. And I hope I'll explain why it's both by the end. There is undoubtedly a demonstrable link between Christianity and democracy worldwide. Samuel Huntington's three waves of democratisation that have occurred since 1828 show a parallel to which countries are predominantly Christian or not. The Economist Intelligence Unit's Index of Democracy rates 190 countries worldwide according to the quality of their democracy in the top category of full democracies, the vast majority of countries are or have some kind of Christian heritage. There is some kind of link there, although it is a contentious one, as people argue it is not in fact Christianity that has led to that democracy, but those Christian countries that secularised first that made the way for democracy. Superficially, when one turns to the Bible, you can see the logic of that. There are certain texts one might mention Romans 13, most famously, or 1 Peter chapter 2, which have a very, very un 
democratic feel to them. It is very easy to defend autocratic and oppressive regimes, or at least autocratic ones, by proof-texting scripture. And many, many Christians have done that in the past. However, the Bible, I think, engages with the content, the moral content of governance, in such a way as to make democracy certainly a possibility and, in actual fact, a good. In my chapter in the volume, I pinpointed four particular areas. First, there is the depth of law. An emphasis on law, its omnipresence, and the fact that law is to be performed and not simply known. Secondly, there is the rule of law. In an ancient world in which the political powers were the law, because they were above the law, we have Deuteronomy chapter 17, 14 to 20, which places political authority under the law. An extraordinary statement at the time. Thirdly, there is the demands of the good. Political power becomes authority, becomes legitimate, if it is oriented to the good. In that famous passage in Romans 13, Paul declares the public authorities God's servant for your good. The good is what turns power into authority. And fourthly, there are strict limits to power. There is this famous passage in 1 Samuel 8 when the Israelites call for a political king, effectively, and God reluctantly acquiesces like a, child, like a parent a bit fed up with his child petitioning to them, but makes the point that any centralisation of power in that regard is going to lead to political, economic and moral abuse. Between them, those four biblical motifs outline, if you like, a content of moral governance which is law-governed, decentralised, localised, emphasises associational activity and is accountable to the good. And it's from that infrastructure that you can build, if you like, a theological case for what you might call reserved democracy. What do I mean by reserved democracy? Well, it means a support for democracy, but not a support for that popular idea that vox populi is vox dei. Democracy is sometimes interpreted as meaning a democratic state is the one in which the people are sovereign. Vox populi, the voice of the people, is the voice of God. And that cannot be sustained on a Christian worldview because, ultimately, God is sovereign. So there is support, if you like, for structures that orientate the political sphere to the good, and one of those is recognising the uh, personhood, the freedom, the equality and the good of the people within that polity, but that doesn't quite translate into a full-blooded, unquestioned support of democracy. Now, in case that sounds like a bit of a reservation, as if it's effectively saying that Christianity is actually a bit of a barrier, therefore, to democracy, it's worth remarking that in the public rhetoric of the day, democracy and human rights are frequently, in fact, unanimously aligned together, as if they are naturally the same thing. And, of course, they're not the same thing. Human rights is, if you like, the, the objective break that is placed on democracy just in case the democratic will of the people orients itself towards damaging and harming that people, as it frequently does if you ask many a minority in some countries. And so in that balance you have in public rhetoric between 
democracy and human rights, you get a similar sense of a reserved democracy. That, I think, is how the Bible engages and how Christianity engages with the questions of the content of government. Democracy is, if you like, a good. It's primarily a, an operational good. Christianity and the Bible supports it, but not unquestioningly, recognising that the structure in and of itself isn't sufficient. Democracy as a culture, I think, is a stronger place to start. A democratic system that is constitutional, recognises the rule of law, recognises an independent judiciary, recognises property rights, has some functioning educational infrastructure, has a lively sense of associational activity and recognises freedom of worship, speech and association. All of those things, if you can hoover them up if you like, under the rubric of a democratic culture is something that the Bible supports. Thank you very much. Good evening. Just a word of caution. I do come from Lebanon and I am Lebanese, so English is my third language after these eloquent Speakers, I'm not sure how I can keep up with that. So is the Bible a bridge or a barrier to democracy? It depends on how we read the Bible, basically. If we read it literally reading, we end up with ISIS communities all over the world. And I have to say, uh, the Bible was compiled, written, handed down, in the Middle East. So I like this debate happening in the West, but really you need to come to the Middle East so we can have a, a good discussion about the contextual, symbolic, expository reading that might lead to greater understanding of democracy. With just one illustration, when we know of the Last Supper, Jesus was sitting with his disciples and he says, whoever dips after me will turn me in, right? Actually, in our Middle Eastern culture, it doesn't happen like that. Actually, Jesus dipped the bread and tried or fed Judas with it. That's the context that we have to understand the Bible. And through that context, we can understand how it can lead us to democracy. Dr. Charles Malik, another Lebanese prominent person who was the first ambassador for Lebanon, the United Nations, was the co-author of the Declaration of Human Rights. I've asked his son, Dr. Habib Malik, who's a colleague at one of the universities, to write us the opening statement of a Bible we published last year called, in Arabic, the Peace and Justice Bible. And I asked Dr. Habib Malik to write something about the Bible and human rights, because in our opinion, having proper human rights will eventually lead to proper practices of democracy. <coughs> I take experts of what, except, sorry, of what Dr. Malik wrote. God created humanity in his image and likeness. By the way, Dr. Malik struggled at the beginning when I gave him the title of this topic. He thought the Old Testament was full of stories that will not 
support the case of human rights. The biblical perspective of the fullness of time when the world is prepared for God to fully reveal himself is the key to understand the continual existence of evil in the world, which will eventually be brought to an end. And we see Jesus as the utmost advocate of human dignity. But what about religious freedom as a human right? I just heard my colleague say something about freedom of worship. We're not happy with freedom of worship. We're not satisfied with that. It's not part of the Declaration of Human Rights. It's the freedom of religion that the Declaration of Human Rights asks for. And you know the difference between the two? Freedom of worship, you're allowed to worship within the confinement of your little millet. Have you heard this word, millet? That's an Ottoman expression of when they developed their control, they had a religious leader as the head of the millet. Whereas freedom of religion allows you to choose by your own free will which religion you want to adopt and live and undertake for yourself. So there's a little technical difference between freedom of worship and freedom of religion, especially when it comes to the Middle East, where many countries in the Middle East offer freedom of worship. But it's illegal to have freedom of religions in the Middle East. Is religious freedom possible according to the Bible? Well, in the New Testament, we see that Christ did not coerce or force anyone to follow him. But instead, <coughs> sorry, I'm using technology. He respected the right of people to choose their own belief. There have been many historical attempts to confirm human rights since we are in the UK like the Magna Carta, the document of public freedom issued by the King of England in 1215, or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which I have already mentioned. God-given human rights are a right for all humans. They're all over the Ten Commandments, Seventh Commandment, prohibiting killing, prohibiting robbery, coveting, honoring one's parents, bringing up your children and raising them decently. The biblical teachings of equality necessitates equality in the distribution even of natural wealth and equality in the economic welfare of people, thereby far exceeding the current list of human rights produced by the United Nations. Accordingly, human rights is the path for democracy. When we adhere to human rights, we are in the right steps to adopt democracy unknowingly. Now, what is the impact of social justice and peace on all that? In this uh, famous Peace and Justice Bible, we have tackled several issues. I'll just list them here the Bible and human rights, the Bible and poverty, interfaith dialogue within the Bible, gender variances in the Bible, the Bible and your neighbor, minorities, children's rights, war and peace in the Bible, persecution, religion and state, nonviolence, the land in the Bible, ecology, and so on. 
Mr. Chairman, my time is up. But if somebody wants to ask later, so why didn't democracy work in the Middle East? I'm ready to answer. <laughs> Thank you both. It's a really, really interesting presentations. Um, Tim, I, re I really took from what you said, making the analogy that um, as the military uh, is cool to be a force for good and uh, needs fighting power, but also needs a moral component, um, that I take from that that um, maybe democracy can and should be seen in a similar way. Uh, it can be a force for good. It can have extraordinary fighting power, but without the moral component, uh, it may struggle uh, and really just becomes an exercise in, in power. Uh, Nick, I, I loved your um, explanation of the causal link, if there was one, uh, between Christianity and reserved democracy. And I found interesting that you um, saw human rights as a break on democracy. Um, uh, a, a break on the abusive state against the dignity of the individual. Um, maybe that's a role that the Bible can sometimes play as well. But interestingly, Mike came at that from a different perspective, seeing human rights really as um, a, a precondition to and something which leads uh, inexorably towards democracy. Um, Mike, we, we all appreciated your, your encouragement to avoid literal, literalism. And always great to be reminded of that fantastic document, uh, partly written by an Archbishop, the Magna Carta. <laughs> I'd just like to start with um, one question, really. Uh, perhaps if I could ask all three of you to have a, have a bash at answering it. Um, obviously, this, this question, um, in, in good political speak, is polarizing um, the issue. I think we all appreciate that it's more subtle than this. and. Um, I was reading something earlier today that said um, wisdom knows its place. In other words, um, wisdom out of context isn't very wise. And we have to recognize the context in which this discussion is happening, which is here in the UK. And we are at a certain point in our history in terms of the relationship between faith and, and the state, uh, between the Bible and democracy. Um, Given the state of that relationship at the moment between, and I'm not judging it, but just given where it is, that state of relationship between faith and society, um, what do you think, turning this question around, what do you think the faith community ought to be learning from the political community? What should the faith community be learning from the political community? Now that may sound like a sort of slightly off-beam and challenging thought, but actually if we look back at our Bibles and remember what happened to the Israelites, they got sent to Babylon to be taught some lessons by a political authority. So there is some precedent for asking this question. Um, so guys, would you like to have a go at answering that? What can the faith community learn from the political community? Actually, I went to uh, Babylon um, and Nebuchadnezzar's palace uh, when I was in Baghdad in 2003, and it was a fascinating place. I'm wandering around reading the book of Daniel uh, in that place and wondering what it would be like uh, to have been exiled 
I also went to a piece of desert that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were supposed to have been thrown into the fiery furnace. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating part of the, of the world. I th it's something that says that, not in the context of the question, that there's some things about the faith community that needs to hold firm to things. So uh, you know, I, don't, I don't think we need to learn everything from the political community. But I suppose in the context of the human rights, which both Nick and Mike made, um, the political world is pushing the faith community down roads that it would not naturally wish to go. Uh, I'm thinking obviously of the sexual debates, um, things like marriage uh, and so on, and forcing us to question uh, how we interpret scripture as to what we see as permissible, allowable, acceptable and so forth. And uh, I, I, speaking personally, I find that, have found that, continue to find that quite demanding. Um, and I struggle with some of those issues. Um, but as we've watched as the Church Synod, for example, has acknowledged women bishops, well, I don't think that would have naturally happened without the political world pressing us and pushing us. Um, so I think maybe the political world is, is pushing us to be far more open-minded, far more inquisitive about the scriptures, and Mike's point about you know, how we interpret them and understanding the context of them and so on. Um, the, it's interesting, I think, in the context of what is democracy. I mean, I think I would say, in the context of the Middle East and democracy, I was asked this, um, I spent quite a lot of time in the Middle East, and I've often said that simply having a building and putting the word, putting a, 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 a nameplate above a building and calling it a parliament doesn't make somewhere a democracy. It's deeply in, embedded in the culture. There's something about democracy which is that when you're elected as a democratic government, you're there to serve all of the people all of the time, not just the people who voted for you. And I think you see that a lot in, in many countries. Um, so for us, uh, the democracy, that if we acknowledge that that is an important part of it, serving all the people all the time, how does the church see that? How does the Christian community see that in the context of some of those debates we've had and are having about the way we treat people who are different um, and um, you know, in that broader context? So I, I, I wouldn't say we have to learn everything from politicians by any manner of means, um, but I think they are forcing us to have a look at some of the issues that uh, we probably need to have a look at. Okay. Um, I've been racking my brains for an answer to the question since you asked it. Um, and I suppose the reason I have is because I, I have been racking my brains because I have a problem with the idea that either community in the question is homogeneous. And I don't think there's such a thing as a faith community or indeed a political community. To take an example I mean from that, I, I think that um, faith communities don't have a great deal to learn from Prime Minister's Question Time, <laughs> but perhaps they do from select committee meetings and reports. Both of those entities are part of the political community, they're both very, very different, and I think one of them is about heat and one of them is about light. Um, so that would be an example of uh, you know, one area that, you know, that the serious thoughtful, non-partisan, usually non-partisan engagement with an issue in significant detail, listening to witnesses and dragging up primary and secondary research that you often find in select committee reports is admirable and very, very, uh, in one of the finest parts of our democracy, really. And I think that's um, a, a form of engagement that um, the faith communities, the Christian communities can imitate. That isn't necessarily to say that they don't. Um, we uh, published a report at Theos a few years ago called Turbulent Priests, 
which looked at the political activity of the last three Archbishops of Canterbury, before Justin Welby, that's Rowan Williams, George Carey and Robert Runcie, and assessed the areas in which they engaged politically, and in particular the manner in which they engaged. And for the most part, it was a thoughtful, um, not self-serving, intelligent, reasonable contribution to the common good. I, I, I think that, that's admirable. That wasn't necessarily so across the board, but I think that's admirable. I think the bishop's report earlier on this year, Who is My Neighbour?, which came in for a bit of a kicking in some sections of the press. It was much shorter, it wasn't you know, thoroughly detailed, but I think it was a balanced and thoughtful and engaging and impressive piece of work. That isn't to say that all forms of Christian political engagement are like that. We know that they're not, and I suspect there are aspects of Christian political engagement that are a bit knee-jerk, that seek to either celebrate or react against certain political authorities because there might be some brownie points in it, a bit of popularity in it. Um, and I think that would be an example of less than wholly admirable Christian political engagement. So I don't doubt there are aspects of um, the political life and political discourse that elements of faith communities can learn from, but I would personally resist the idea of homogenising each community. Well, if I was to talk about the Middle East, my answer to your question would be nothing. <laughs> There's nothing that the faith community ought to learn from the political community. If I just give you an example of Lebanon's political system, uh, by constitution, the president has to be a Maronite Christian. Whether he's qualified or not, this is his constitutional right. By constitution, the prime minister has to be a Sunni Muslim. By constitution, the head of the parliament, or speaker of the parliament, has to be a Shiite Muslim. The government is divided, no matter what number, equally between Christians and Muslims. It's all about representation. It's not about competency. Same with our parliament. 128 members divided equally between Christians and Muslims. And every Christian group or Muslim group has a quota. And here we go into a dilemma when we talk about our political system. Because it's about, again, representation and not competence. Whereas the church actually or the faith community has been able to go beyond that, our interconfessional and ecumenical dialogue and even interfaith dialogue has gone far beyond what our government has been able to achieve in the past decades. So really, Lebanon is not about the political system, it's about the people and the faith people. Thank you. I think that's a very timely reminder, again, of um, wisdom knowing its place and uh, uh, how contextualized these issues are.